you can't stay inside the box and be successful at anything day in and day out. You're going to have failures. You're going to have successes, but you got to just, you got to get out there and try something. If something's not working, I mean, why keep trying it over and over again? Right. Cause you know what? That's the definition of How are you, Sean Stahl? I am doing good, man. All right. Are you on the road? Uh, I'm actually sitting uh, in my truck on a dog training mound so I can get service. Uh, well, uh, welcome to the DSD Hunting Podcast, everyone. Uh, I am your host, Brad Cochran, with my co-host, Dave Smith. And today we have our good friend, Sean Stahl, back. How you doing, Sean? I am wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for coming back, man. Anytime. Yeah, we uh, we enjoyed our last conversation with you, and uh, you know, we're have been looking forward to having you back ever since. So we're we're cool. really glad to have you. I must be getting old because I think I forgot what we talked about. <laughs> no, that's okay. We'll just talk about it again. But it was it was wildly popular, though. You're a wildly popular guy, and this is exciting because it's closer to waterfowl season. Yeah, yeah it is, man. Count out well. Actually, some places have already started. Like uh, North Dakota started on the fifteenth, and that's. Yep. I still find it hard to get into goose hunting in August, and I. Just that the fire isn't there yet until the ragweed and mosquitoes are gone. But, you know, I'm sitting here in Minnesota right now. Uh, Gangford just got over, and I stayed a couple extra days to film some dog training stuff for an upcoming episode of RNTV. And um, there's still geese on the pond here that can't fly. Is that right? Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, this year, like everywhere, I've only been one place this year where, and I can't remember where it was, in northern Minnesota, like north, northern, like up by the border, said they had a, uh, they didn't have that many geese around. But everywhere I've been, everybody's saying, you know, in the Midwest here, how many geese are around? There's just hundreds, there's hundreds, there's geese where they never saw geese and geese on top of geese. But what, what really, what happened also is we had just a, a real drawn out hatch. We've, you know, oh. normally like back home, you can put on the calendar about the third week in March. I'm sitting here watching about 50 honkers dump into this pond. This is pretty cool. But, uh, so these ones are obviously flying. But, um, the, uh, about third week of March, they start laying eggs and they're sitting on them by about the first of April. And right there, last couple of days of April, they're hatching generally. Well, we had birds hatching all the way into June, you know, little goslings. So just, they were just all spread out. And I, we had a real wet, cold uh, spring. We really didn't get summer until about the first week of June. So everything was just kind of, some birds started nesting and then some waited and held off or or whatever. You know, they had, their first nest was destroyed and re, re-nested. But yeah, we've got birds that are strung out. We've got really young birds this year hmm. right now. So hopefully that translates into better decoying birds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's yeah. go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was just going to say also there's a bunch of pro staffers that are excited about the idea that they can go 
they can go go shoot birds on a pond that can't fly yet. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, uh, that'd be pretty tough for me. You know, t- yeah, yeah, time to get the yeah. time to get the camera set Here up. Here they come! I mean, Here they come! Where are they at? They're swimming in. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. They're not talking about the filming aspect of it. They just want to get the yeah. photos so they can get the likes. Oh yeah, yeah. They yeah. can they can yeah. pile them up, Sean. That flock yeah. of fifty that you just saw, if it couldn't fly, I mean, they could wipe them yeah. all out. Get their yeah. well, Instagram be likes a month, and be a month, month's worth of Instagram post right there. That's right. Yeah. Well, we didn't really come here to talk about that, but it is kind of fun. <laughs> um. So, you know, one of the topics that we brought up last time was um, was panel blinds and. Man, it seems like uh, panel blinds now are even more popular than they were last year. Um, I mean, I turn on the outdoor channel and every waterfowling show I see now, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to see anybody hunting out of layout blinds anymore. Not to say that that's the overall trend because I myself still hunt out of a layout blind, but um, I know a lot of our listeners are, are using panel blinds, and Sean, you're probably... Um, using panel blinds as, as much as anybody that, that we know. So um, we, we'd like to ask you some questions on, you know, maybe breaking down mm-hmm. more specifically how you hunt out of a, out of a panel blind versus, oh, versus yeah. using a, a layout. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I can't get like my crew. I, generally in my, I call it my toolbox, which is my trailer, seven by 14 trailer. I generally have about eight layouts and about six panel blinds in there. And for the last two years, I couldn't, I, I just can't get my guys to hunt on layout blinds, no matter what. They just will not absolutely refuse to do it. And I quit, I quit hauling around layout blinds. They're just taking up space in the blind. Wow. But, you know, I, but here's the deal. I'm not selling them. I'm not getting rid of them because I've, you know, I've said this before. We did a TV show on it. It's the revolution of goose hunting, not the evolution. And what's what's works today, you know, not too far into the future is, is they're going to get wise to, and we're going to have to start pulling out some of the tricks that we used way back in the day. I think that's what goes with the with the the rise of the panel blinds. Is you know, we bought. I think I've said this, mentioned it. I don't know on here before, but we were having just just in all kinds of trouble finishing birds, and you know, trying everything, power calling putting decoys hundred, you know, hundred, 125 yards downwind of us and making them come up to you and, and calling them up in and, and still flaring them. And we bought a drone and it wasn't originally with when we bought a drone, it wasn't for the productive value of a TV show. It was more, uh, we wanted to figure out why we weren't finishing these birds and what was going, you know, what they were seeing and get up there and look at it from their angle. And we got up there and we looked at these layout blinds. It was like, Holy cow. Wow. That, doesn't look very natural you know you're seeing a lot of square edges um and rectangles and you know you think you got a blind camouflaged and it's you get up in there and look at it and you see the edges and the shadows and it's it's just not natural and the birds have become condition smart to you know when you're putting them out out on in the middle of the fields and you know guys still use them and, and and are successful in areas but by and large if you're using the layout blind and they're successful you probably got to pull up on an edge somewhere and you've got it so grassed in, it, it just looks like a, a big clump. And and like my guys are always saying, you know, if, if we got if we're gonna hunt the edge, and we're gonna grass the heck out of a blind, why don't we just 
grass something that we can sit down in and not lay down and be more comfortable. And and they kind of got a point. So that's that's kind of where we've been with getting uh, into hunting panel blinds more. And then, Sean, weren't you kind of a pioneer of, of kind of bringing that style of blind back or 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 even introducing that style of blind? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I got pioneer or whatever. I don't follow that kind of stuff. But I just, hey, I know that I'm like anybody that, that hunts hard and wants to make it, you know, make every hunt better than the one before. And we're always trying. So if something's not working, I'm going to try something else. And if something is working, it, whether it's what I'm doing or somebody else is doing, I may, you know, pick up on that. Uh, and go from there. But I, I've been using uh, panel blind style blinds uh, since the early '90s, and I mean, I um, I kind of got those that idea from that from hunting uh, in northern Illinois uh, and seeing how they hunt. You know, they had more permanent style A-frame style blinds, and then also seeing some of the stuff they did out in the Eastern Shore. And I just, you know, I said, I need something that's portable that I could move around and I made, you know, made some out of fencing and conduit and we welded up these conduit rectangles and attached fence to it and put grass on it, wove it in there and did that. It was portable and I could set it up and move it around wherever we hunted, you know? Um, and I've, I've had those sitting around forever and we just get, like I said, we, we got to a point and I had those, you know, still sitting since the early nineties sitting in my, uh, my pole barn and, got to the point you know we, we find that drone like i said and seeing what these birds and we were scared to to even put a layout blind in the field anymore so the next next time we hit the road i took that uh old a-frame style blind that panel blind that i had and we took that and we started hunting edges and doing being real productive and went from there and and made it so it it was modular and folded up and fit into the back of a pickup or in a trailer and all that and came up with a panel blind that that uh that tangle freeze now offering to the hunters mm-hmm. and then could you for our listeners will you describe it as as, as best as you can as far as if it has well, any kind of... it's it's what the panel blind is and it's a little different than the rest of the the a-frame style and, and the panel blind is basically an upright panel uh, a-frame style blind and it's two sides and each side has five individual panels on it that are hooked together so it's kind of like an accordion and you can un- you can leave the you can grass it up, fold it up, throw it in your trailer, and then when you show up to hunt, you unfold it, put it out, put a few stakes in the ground, and if you need a uh, a front and a back, you put another one on the other side. It sets up really fast. And the advantage of the panel blind over some of the other ones is the versatility of it. If you want to hunt on a riverbank, uh, if you want to hunt up against a tree line, uh, in cattails or standing corn, whatever you know, any coverage on one side. You can just put it on one side. Um, you could tuck it into cattails way better than you can, you know, the other uh, style of blinds because there's just one side of the blind. Just offers a little more versatility to the hunter and the options they have available to use it. Because again, I go back to the the deal I say all the time: the tools in the toolbox. It's just a tool to be able to use for the right situation. But the panel blind is more of a multi-tool tool. If that makes sense. Okay. But, uh, you know, and I get, there's, when you hunt out of any of these stand-up style blinds, there's, there's certain rules that you have to follow when you're hunting them. You know, you can't just go randomly set it up out in the field and expect to be, be successful. 
um, because a this this blind does stick up. It's it's unnatural from what it was before. Um, I like to grass in my blind pretty heavily. I don't so much rely on making the color match because the blinds are going to stand out anyway. I want something like a marsh grass or a Johnson grass, something that's fluffy and it looks very natural. It's going to eliminate the lines um, that, that you create. And when I first look at a field and I try to figure out where I'm going to put this blind, um, I look at the size of the field. I look at how big it is and I don't want to put this blind right out in the middle of the field. I want to be offset one side of the field or the other to be able to give these birds time or time and space to be able to circle and do their things to be geese and come in and land without having to fly up and over and around the blind. I want them to be able to get downwind of me and be able to turn and move and do natural things. And then we can pull them up into the, the spread, you know, the decoys, uh, by calling or just utilizing the decoys and flagging to get them in. So I want to be offset from the middle. I don't want to be dead set in the middle. Now, if this is a, a one mile by one mile field, it doesn't really matter. But if you're in a field that's, you know, 15 or 20 acres, it matters a lot. Sure. You don't want to pinch your man. You don't want to pinch your man and make them swing over tree lines and that kind of stuff. So you want to back it up. Um, the, the blinds do work out in the middle. I prefer hunting on edges, but I will hunt in the middle. Um, and when I do hunt in the middle or even when I do hunt in the middle, you have to be very conscientious of shadows. And I've learned this the hard way. I knew it back in the nineties when I used it, forgot it. When I first got it back out, we were in Kansas hunting. We set up and the birds just absolutely would not finish. We had the, the blind tucked back into some cattails, but they still would not finish. And, you know, we got out in front of the blind a couple hundred yards and looked and realized that uh, we were casting a large shadow and it was going in front of us. So if you're out in the field, you need to make sure that the sun is hitting somewhere on the front portion of the blind to cast the shadow behind you. Because it doesn't matter what you what you grass the blind up with, it's just going to be a giant black hole if you have the sun behind you. And the geese really don't want to come into a giant black hole. So that's that's the next rule is always try to have some some kind of sun facing on a blind. You don't necessarily want it to be looking directly into the sun, but you want it on an angle to cast you know the the, the shadow behind you. Mm-hmm. The next the next rule is birds typically whether you're hunting on an edge of a fence row or in the middle of a field, they typically don't want to come and land straight into a danger point, a pinch point, something like that rock pile, a wood line, a blind, whatever it is, it's easier to crosswind them or angle shoot them than it is to make them fly directly into the blind. And, and, when, and when I lay all these rules out there, there's always exceptions to every rule, and every rule can be broken. But by and large, on a day-in and day-out basis, these rules apply. So I try to crosswind them as much as possible or angle shoot them coming in on an angle, and I try to put more decoys further downwind of the blind and not, and I try to put my pocket like right in front of the blind, but not above upwind of the blind. So they don't have to fly by the blind to get to the, to the hole. And they also have to fly over decoys to get up in you. So that, and if you're using a realistic decoy spread and you're calling and, you know, people say, well, what happens if you, you got decoys 80, 90 yards downwind and they, they start landing short of you? Well, guess what? They landed short of you, but you, you've got a better chance of birds 
of, of making them come up into the spread if they're landing short of you just because that's where they want to land versus if they come up and fly up in and they spook and then you're trying to make them turn and come back in. Uh, it's easier to call in a bird that's trying to shortstop you than it is one that already figured out the boogeyman is around. Sure. So, you know, and, and that's just one of those things. There's just a little bit of science that goes into when you set up in the morning um, and, and how you set up the spread, where the birds are coming from, just taking all that into account. So that if, if you take a little more time on the front end and thinking about how you set up and where you want these birds to come in from, it's just going to enhance, it's just going to increase the overall success that you're going to have that day. Okay, and then on your the decoy spread, so this, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are going to be kind of freaking out at the idea of putting you know decoys so far downwind and stuff. But how how do you? Um, I assume that you have, you know, the the huge majority of your decoys at that quartering angle, and that's your kill kill hole clo- close to the blind. But now the birds don't mm-hmm. have to cross it. But so do you do do you are you a little more sparse and with with the decoys that are yeah. further down? Yeah, I mean you know as it depends on the bird you're hunting, but most little geese want to come to the mash. They want to come to the dark spot in the spread. Um, and generally, the later in the year you get, honkers will want to pull up into the mass of the spread. So if you're just putting, you know, I don't put if I don't I don't put a big black spot of decoys 80 yards downwind of me. No, that that's the kiss of death because you will land them down there and, and it will be. But I'll put, you know, a pair here up you know, a little three pack or a five pack or something like that and just kind of space them out downwind. And all I'm really trying to do is get the birds that are circling to get them comfortable and take their eyes off of up, you know, up in the spread and where the boogeyman is. I want them looking at, at other birds or decoys, what they think are birds on the ground, looking at that, trying to pick, you know, trying to come along and try to find, you know, where their seat is going to be in the spread. You know, I look, I, I talk about it all the time. If you, you, you think about a movie theater, and when you walk in there, walk into a movie theater, you, you've got seats from the from the back to the front, and you're trying to figure out where you're going to sit. Well, naturally, some people like to sit in the back, and that's where they're going to sit. Some people like to sit in the front, and that's where they're going to sit. But if you start filling up these spots, these seats with people, and as you as more people walk in, you'll see them kind of look around, right? They're looking around trying to pick a spot, pick a seat, and generally they kind of gravitate to either A, where they're more comfortable, or where there's open, you know, a bigger, bigger areas of open seats. And that's where they kind of, you know, flock to basically. And I don't think geese are any different than us. You know, they come in, geese are coming in, they come into that spread and they're looking around. Okay. There's somebody here, somebody here. Okay. Here's a good spot right here. Boom. Oh, uh oh, <laughs> there's those guys in the guns and it's over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love, I love that the whole concept. I mean, I love the idea of for one, I mean, just picture that compared to, um, just a mob of decoys in one single spot in the field where that just looks like a setup and it looks like the boogeyman. And meanwhile, you know, they probably wouldn't decoy very well to, to a group of three decoys or a single decoy. But as they're flying along, they're looking down and it kind of seems like it takes their concentration off of the, off of that mob. Yep. They're kind of like, oh, hey, there's there's a few geese and there's a few geese. And but we should go check this out up here where the huge concentration is. And it just probably just looks so natural and so so unhunter like you know that's and th- there you go unhunter like because we all fall into similar paradigms and how we set up and how we do things from you know what type of blinds we use where we set them up 
you know, the, the decoy spreads we use, how we call, how we flag, all that. We all fall into that same deal and we start all, they start patterning us in, then figuring us out as a boogeyman from a bigger distance away instead of looking more natural and looking different than everybody else. Sure. So, okay, Sean, so let's talk about now that we've kind of gone over decoy spread, let's talk about um, how far out you start your decoys and how you flag being um, that you're presumably outside of the decoys and how you call uh, not being in the decoys as well. Yeah, uh, it, it just really depends. But like a lot of times, I generally, people, uh, you've asked me, you know, like hunting out of the, the panel blinds, you put decoys behind you if you're in the middle of the field. No, because I don't really want them to land back there. You know, um, I don't want to be twisting around in the blind, so I typically don't. So I keep them out, you know, in front and to the right or left of the blind. But, uh, you know, I mean, anywhere from five to 10 yards, I'll start them and, then I'll space them out. I mean, they could be 60 yards out in front of us and 80 to 100 yards downwind of us. Um, but the but I try to make the the parking lot look like where I want them to land is within about you know 20 to 30 yards. That's where I want my that's where I want my hole to be. Uh huh. And I want that's where I want to make the most inviting location for them. And do you find that? Price. That there's kind of a magical distance where um, you, you start your decoys in order um, for your spread to be effective. And I guess what I mean by that is it seems like here in the valley where we're hunting a lot of cacklers and lessers, uh, it's, pr- it's pretty important to get your decoy started, uh, you know, no closer than maybe what would you say dave 15 or 20 yards yeah when you're edge hunting or edge hunting yeah 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 and again like it just to me it depends on what the edge is but yeah it's i i usually walk out 10 to 14 paces before i start my decoys somewhere in there okay yeah and as far as flagging goes we've we've developed a, a flag over the years based off of buddies um, concept that he showed us and we went through about three or four different iterations of it but we call it the devastators a buddy of mine over in kingsville ontario jeff wood um he came up with it and uh, he's always come up with these wild ideas and everything and, and they generally most don't work and this does too and we just made a, a more modular more robust version of it that we could drag around the country and throw in a trailer but so we use that it's just a long pull cord and we've got a five and a ten foot flag pull and we can pull that and get that motion out away from us. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, the clone decoys. We've got the, the Lucky Duck HDs. Uh, we've got those. Now we've got a, a motorized flag that we're, we're trying to work with. But I'm a big advocate of getting the motion out away from where we're hiding mm-hmm. and, and getting several different spots where you can put motion to look more natural and to just pull birds that are turning and and encircling or off in the distance and um it just it looks more natural in that aspect just getting it out there and we'll always have a flag or two in the blind with us for those birds that are off in the distance we're trying to create you know a lot of motion or you know maybe jump out of the blind and, and run around and do all that stuff that old, old grounds kind of showed us and back with full moon fever and all that but uh um that never hurts in in uh 
sometimes I'll send it, it sounds silly, but I'll send the dog out. He's black. I just let him run around and air out in the decoys if the geese are flying around or, um, I wear black a lot of times or, you know, a dark contrasting color to be able to handle the dog and like corn and wheat and I'll get out of the blind and move around just any of that motion, um, out there to, to attract them can't yep. hurt. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And then how about, how about your calling? Uh, <clears throat> Colin's kind of an if then, but uh, if then, but if, um, if they're doing this, then we do that. But if they're doing this, then we do this. It's just, I never have any kind of a canned, um, scenario of how I call birds. It's all reading and reacting to what they, what they're doing. Um, I know some guys will try to let off if they're hunting an edge and let off the bird, you know, to not give up their spot. Um, and that works sometimes. Sometimes you've got to stay on them just to make them uh, pull them in. You know, they you may be up against a wood line and they really don't want to slide into that hole. Uh, they're just not real comfortable. And if you let off them, they're just going to land out there in front of you 60, 80 yards. And you sometimes got to get on them and hammer them and make them, make them do something they really don't want to do. So I don't generally have a, a set specific, you know, it's, it's, if this is working, then we do it. If not, then we try this. Uh huh. But your um, your your calling and your your calling abilities and your your hunting partner's calling abilities is what gives you the confidence to have decoys that are eighty yards away at times. Would you? Would yeah, you agree with and, that? and and you just made a very valid statement. And you know everything that you do, whether it's hunting or any content or anything you do, your job, your life, whatever. If if you're more confident in what you're doing, you're going to be more successful. So if you already go in and you're confident about what you're doing, you're already generally trying harder. You're giving more effort in what you're doing. You know, if you if you set up a, a decoy spread and all oh, this isn't going to work, and you know they're not going to come in. They're not, you know, you don't pick up the call when you need to. You know, you're not flagging, you're not trying. You're just sitting there sulking and you're mad about it. You're not going to be as successful, in my opinion. So. Whatever you do, you have to have confidence in that setup. So if you don't believe in putting decoys way down below, you're probably not going to be as successful as you would if you did believe in what your abilities are to be able to overcome anything, any shortcoming that would happen with the, de- the geese trying to land short of you or uh, circling wide, that kind of thing. Sure. The, the only thing I would add to that is kind of what you touched on before is, you know, like I really love the idea that you experiment around and take chances and, and, uh, try new things. And, Oh, it's every day. Cause yeah. I, you know, if you're not learning every day when you go out hunting, if there's not something you say, wow, I've never seen that before. Yeah. You're, you're probably kidding yourself about actually going hunt because there's not a day goes by that you're like, wow, you know, I've never thought I'd see that. These are wild creatures. And, you know, as much as we want to think we can predict what they're going to do, what time (laughs) they're going to fly, how they're going to decoy, you just never know. I mean, how many times you've been out and seen geese land with the wind? You know, it's as crazy as it sounds, you know, but they'll do it. You know, if they really want to get in there a certain way, they'll do it. Yeah, they can can do what they want. They didn't read the manual. Uh (laughs) Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was, I was just saying, like, that's a time when, 
even you know if you're trying something new you might not have a ton of confidence in it i mean if 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 our listeners only do the things that they have a ton of confidence in they probably won't be trying some new some new things no, or whatever you know no they're going to probably that's you can't stay inside the box and be successful at anything day in and day out you're going to have failures you're going to have successes but you got to just you got to get out there and try something if something's not working I mean, why well, keep trying it over and over again, right? Because you know what that's the definition of. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, so you might as well you might as well try something different, you know. And I'm not one of those people that the first flock comes in and I got to go change something, you know. I I want to see, you know. And granted, if you're only dealing with 50 or 75 birds, you know, coming to your field, you kind of got to do everything right the first time. But if you've got a, a few groups of birds, you've generally the, the first bunch of geese coming out, especially honkers, more so honkers than anything, they generally kind of already have a game plan of what they're going to do in the morning and where they're going. And they show up and see a bunch of decoys in the field. And that's, you know, not really what, what they're at. It's the, it's the birds that come in later are generally a little easier to decoy day in and day yeah. out. So I yeah. tend to let that first bunch just go, okay, well, you know, let's see what the next bunch does. But if that happens, I'm out. Let's go. Let's try something different. Let's move something. You know, what are they seeing? What are they? What are they hearing? You know, are they seeing us in the blind? Are they? You know, is the, did the guy on the flag? Did he have it up too high? Or you just always trying to trying to do something. I mean, yes, yes. Bill the hunts with me. I mean, he sits next to me, and I've got a, a little control panel that I snap onto the uh, snap onto the front of the panel blind, and that's got uh, it's got my two lucky duck. Uh, remotes on it and two uh, clone decoy remotes on it, and he's got the pull string for the Devastator. And I'm, I mean, we got hand signals going and in different terms: flutter, flutter, flutter. That's for fluttering the flag, flag pull up. You know, it just all different kinds of stuff going on um, at any given time. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it gets utter chaos. Yeah, but like my guys are always saying, yeah. It's probably well, it's probably a good thing they can't read my mind, but sometimes I I think they should read my mind so they know exactly what I want them to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and you you're kind of like me, except for I'm way way worse. But your hearing is not all that epic. What? <laughs> and so yeah. I mean I know what that's like when you know I get in those situations yeah. with with waterfowl and with elk hunting too, where somebody's like whispering stuff to me, and I'm just like yeah. I can't hear what you're saying, like. Yeah, yeah, that's I guess pretty bad. I've been trying. I got a set of those wild ears, and been trying to wear those more and pick up on the on the little conversations yeah. that I you know should be hearing. And I say, what? Huh? Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yep. Same here. Yep. Yep. So, um, so on those, uh, going back to the blinds really quick, just just to make sure, so everybody knows, like, two two things I'm wondering about is what do you what do you do for a chair, and does the blind have any like overhead cover? Well, two things. We I use tangle for the blind stool. Um, it's it's not. Um, it takes up quite a bit of space in the trailer, but and I'm I'm all about uh, being modular and Cuban auto trailer. But it's one thing that I um, that we we haven't sacrificed on, and it's because it's it's if it's comfort factor, the ability for it, you can get you can raise it up, you can drop it down. So if you got Hey, say you got an older hunter that has a bad back, you can raise it up, uh, and they don't have to stand up. You know, they they, they don't they're not getting up from a a, a squat position. Mm-hmm. We can lower them way down. It's cushion and it swivels three sixty, 
that for me is is key is the swivels. I can spin around in the blind, and I'm not knocking stuff over and falling down and twisting up. You know, if you're on a, a chair that didn't swivel, a lot of guys like to fold up stuff because it's modular. Uh, me personally, that's not it. You know, but if you've got a bunch of guys that uh, that you know aren't doing a lot of calling, they're doing more shooting, um, that kind of stuff. You can get the folding the folding ones, and that's that works out for them. But I got to be able to see these things. And as far as tops go, we go back and forth um, with that hit. Uh, and this this lead this will lead me to my my next rule that I I skimmed over on 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 these style blinds. But uh, and and when I say it, you'll probably understand. What, I mean, I know you'll understand what I'm what I mean. But um, we go back and forth with using the flip tops on the panel blind or not using the flip tops on the panel blind. And if you've got guys, if you're hunting an edge and you've got guys that will not by face, they'll stay down and not move. Not not a hundred percent necessary to have the flip tops. Um, but if you're out hunting more out in the middle, you're hunting in fog, uh, something like that. The flip tops, uh, just generally on one side of the blind, is about all you need. And that's just gonna all that's doing is cutting down on them seeing you with the movement. And if you don't have the flip tops, we just kind of peak the grass up over the top and kind of create its own blind top to cover that spot. Like if you fly over it with a drone, what you see is a black spot. Mm-hmm. And we've went back and forth and back and forth about it and what to wear in the blinds and this and that. And from flying a drone, the thing that we noticed the most is that there's shadows everywhere, first off. Everywhere in nature, there's shadows. So shadows are not unnatural. So a shadow in a blind top isn't necessarily unnatural in the top of the blind, but it, because it's just, it's, it's so, it's small compared to if you had the sun behind the blind casting this giant, huge shadow. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's not unnatural looking and the birds have to be just directly over the top to see. But if you're wearing standard camouflage hat and top sitting in a blind with an open top on it, you you're you're just like a uh, you're a beacon is what you are. So we started actually wearing black like you would in a turkey blind mm-hmm. to blend in to blend in with that shadow, and you can move around and do a lot more, uh, get away with a lot more motion and movement if you're wearing black inside that blind and to blend in with that shadow. So that's the other rule that that we try to follow uh, quite a bit, especially the guys that are going to be doing the calling. Uh, they need to be they need to be wearing black because they're going to be the ones that are going to be moving around. And we found that out too when we were filming ducks one time in Nebraska last year. The camera guy had white, you know, it was snow on the ground and we had the white covers in the panel blind and he was wearing white inside thinking that it would blend in with everything. Well, there was still, we had the flip tops on, so there's still a shadow there and kept flaring ducks. Kept getting them into like 30, I mean, close enough to shoot, but not where we wanted. And it kept flaring. It's like, what is this? And I said, take your white top off once. And then, boom, guess what? They start finishing. Hmm. And so then then we got the drone out after the hunt, put the guns up. Um, when we were getting ready to pack up and got the drone out and put everybody back in the line and had everybody kind of go through a sequence of what they'd normally do. And, yeah, man, I mean, every little twitch of the, you know, the guy that was wearing white, he was like, boom. Yeah, there's something. There's the boogeyman right there. Hmm. That's that's so neat that you follow up on that stuff and and really test it and then you know and then you're nice enough to share share I, it. I'm with, just never I'm never happy. I shouldn't say I'm never happy. I'm always excited for a good hunt, 
but I'm always, I always look at a, at a good hunt and say, okay, what can we do better next time? I just, I'm always trying to find that next thing to just make it go even better the next time. Well, and then another and thing that, that we've known about you for many, many years is that you have a little bit of a competitive uh, side to you and you don't, you don't yeah. like to get your ass handed to you by the guy um, in the next field over. You'd rather be in a reverse or, or situation. Or the birds. Yeah, or the, or birds. the birds. Yeah, I don't. I don't like them winning. Yeah. Although I mean, they, although, although they need they need to occasionally, but yeah, I don't like them winning too. Yeah. So yeah. on the uh, on the camouflage, it's interesting that you say that too because we we kind of figured out uh, through trial and error too, like we're wearing all these camouflage patterns and camouflage hats um, that have a lot of contrasting, you know, a lot of contrast in them. Well. And even face, even face paint and stuff like that with a bunch of stripes and stuff like that adds a lot of contrast. And then what, every little bit of movement that you make is, is magnified because you've got the contrast and stuff. And meanwhile, with a solid color hat or solid color face paint or face mask, it's, all of a sudden you can get away with a lot more. Mm-hmm. You know, and people don't probably view it this way, but, but the, the color black is a very good camouflage. Mm-hmm. You know, a very good camouflage. It doesn't look, I mean, even out in the middle of a leap field, black stands out, but it doesn't look unnatural unless it's a huge, you know, giant shadow. But just, you know, you get up against a tree line or, you know, deer hunting, turkey hunting, whatever, black just kind of blends in. Yeah. Yeah. And it hides movement. And so, yep. yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Like, uh, I've just been working on a new camouflage pattern actually for a, a, a company that makes ground blinds. And, you know, on there I was making a really open, actually Scott, our producer was working on it with me a little bit, but I was making a really open pattern, you know, really open with some, mm-hmm. some light areas and stuff. And at first they were like, well, wait, shouldn't it be, a, you know, all green and a really tight pattern or whatever. And you know, that, uh, it like for a ground blind, the, the pattern that you'd make is quite a bit different than for clothing, where you know, because the ground blind is not going to be moving. Ho- hopefully, hopefully yeah. it's not going to be moving. But, you know, but a, a lot of a lot of patterns are people pleasing. Yeah. Rather than than having any effect, and you listen, you could go into a lot of any major retailer and look around at products, and there's some that work, and there's a lot that are made to please make think make people think they work yeah they look they look good yeah. from from three three feet away in the store mm-hmm. but then kind of blend into a big yeah. a big dark mob at you know mm-hmm. 10 yards away or more yep sean are you implying that they're made for shelf appeal oh yeah you know that yep yep sex sells right that's right baby <laughs> Uh, well, pretty what, is pretty does. What's uh, what what are you looking forward to right now? What's what's your what's your what's occupying your thoughts these days? Oh, getting into season, man. Um, I just don't have a big plan yet. I don't have a big plan, and that's that's one thing I've been talking about uh, a lot lately. And you know, I guess at uh, NWTF. When I saw you last, Brad, there was a couple guys that stopped by the booth and they're talking like, "Hey, where'd you hunt all this year?" And I started telling them, "I'm like," and I didn't didn't dawn on me until then that we never hunted more than 40 miles south of Interstate 80 all year, and that was only one time we were 40 miles south. Oh wow! And it wasn't that wasn't that great, and we turned and went north, but we ran that I-80 corridor east and west 
um, because them birds, you know, come down, hit the rock, you know, hit, hit the front range there, and then slide and pretty much follow the Platte River over to the Missouri and come down. So we kind of ran that line most of the year. And, and you know, the more I've been talking to people this summer, they're like, where are you, you know, are you going to go to Texas this year? Are you going to do this? And I'm like, man, I don't know. Because it seems like anymore the, the birds and the weather – you just you can't predict where they're going to be mm-hmm. at a certain time. You used to think, well, okay, we can go to Texas in January, and and that's going to be loaded with lessers. Well, it may or may not be. So you can't, you can't really say where you're going to go at a certain time. All you can do is plan a time frame to go and try to figure out you know where you want to go a few days ahead of time. So that little cat and mouse deal has changed a lot. The migrant. Birds are migrating different than they used to. Their timing is different, whether it's, you know, we're having warmer falls. Um, the the pressure dictates a lot. The birds uh, used to migrate, you know, Canada geese used to migrate to one area and stay. And then when it came spring, they turn around and burn and go back home. Now they're, they're more mobile in their migration. They stop more times. And when pressure picks up, they push out and go somewhere else uh, and go to the path of least resistance. So it's just gotten a lot more unpredictable as to where and how you want to hunt. So um, that's added a new uh, a new wrinkle in the chess game. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's awesome that you can be uh, mobile, you know. And uh... yeah, and I, you know, I talk to people, and I'm fortunate to be able to travel and. You know, and and I when I talk to people, if if I if I had to only hunt at home, um, I would pick my days. I would pick my spots. I'd hunt. I'd hunt. You know, hunt the weather days, the days that you have factors in your favor. Um, the the trying to hunt a field, a cornfield on a clear uh, on a clear day with a foot of snow and um, ten degree temperatures. Just it's you're better off putting some miles on scout and figuring out where they are and. And waiting for a, a day when the when the wind's going to blow and snows, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I'd also manage the birds, the pressure that that we're, I'm putting on these birds. You know, I wouldn't try to hunt them every day. Um, you know, if there's only a certain number of birds in that area, I wouldn't try to put a ton of pressure on them every single day because you got to kind of manage that resource. And I wouldn't, you know, if you've got a good spot, a good field. He's getting so guys, uh, you know, you can't go sit in it all day trying to shoot a limit. You got to go in there, get in there. Maybe say I'm shooting into the first three bunches and we're picking up and we're getting out of here and letting these birds build back up to manage that resource and getting, you know, three to five hunts out of a spot instead of one. You know, mm-hmm. that you, if you go in there and, and, and shoot it up. And that's what we, I did that when I hunted at home um, back in the day a lot. And now that I'm traveling, I, I don't get a chance to hunt around home as much anymore. But um, but I tell that's what I tell everybody that that doesn't you know have the opportunity to to get out and get around. And and the other thing is to start networking um, with other people and trading out trading out hunts with people from different parts. You know, making uh, making friends in different areas, and you know, so you can get on the phone and say, hey, we've got them, come hunt, come out with us, kind of deal. That makes a big difference. That helps a lot. Uh, as far as like you know, for you, uh, when you when you need to know where the where the birds are, it boy, it's nice to have friends. 
Well, and it's anymore. I mean, with with social media, it's pretty easy. You know, most people are a lot more open than I would probably be. About <laughs> yeah. are. But so it's pretty easy to pick up on and pattern and figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Every time there's a hidden gem out there, it doesn't last but a, a year or two. And, and uh, then there's a, then you got to find the, the other place. Yeah. Yeah. We have several friends and several customers that are pretty much pinned down to hunting one spot, whether it's their own property or, uh, you know, a club or something like that. And, you know, some of them are just in geese like crazy and some of them, it you know kind of feel like well the heyday is kind of over or or, yeah. or at least hopefully it's a temporary thing uh, temporarily yep. without birds yeah and you know i don't know whether you know people talk a lot about climate change and all that stuff or whatever i don't know if that as a as a factor has you know change changing changing things or whatever but boy being i think you know mobile. i mean it possibly can but you got to be mobile because the amount of pressure we may have less hunters today, but we have better hunters today. Yeah. And yeah. and we we may have less hunters, but we have more hunters that hunt more days. You know, it used to be the old 80-20, you know, 80% of the birds were killed by 20% of the hunters. Well, it's it that that ratio is way different now. We've we've created I mean, these podcasts, these seminars, these TV shows, uh YouTube, all that have created uh better, more educated hunters that have better skills and can go out there and, and we put a lot of pressure on these birds. Yeah. The da- damn podcast. What's that? Yeah. The damn podcast. Yeah. See what you did. See what you did. It's all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, we blame it on our guests. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're kind of powerless here. Um, so I've been following the show, Sean, RNTV, which um, I, I really... No, I've I've really been enjoying. It's been getting me through the summer, that's for sure. Awesome. In the brutal heat. Um but yeah, no, there's been some really cool episodes on lately. I really like the one at um Fergus Falls. Yeah, that was that was a blast. That was a blast. Yeah, that was a cool place, uh cool time of year as a bucket list. Um I've driven by that a lot of times going to Canada. Always wanted to stop. I've got friends that have hunted there. Uh, always told me about how good it was. I mean, it's just, it was a bucket list item. Had a chance to go there. Um, my only regret is we went for three days and not didn't stay any longer than the three days. It's just it's a cool area. It's how I grew up hunting. You don't hunt on the X hardly ever, if if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you're hunting traffic birds, and that's that's how I grew up hunting public back home. Um, there's some public ground up in Fergus, but, um, we were hunting both public and, and private, but it's similar style hunting. You're just setting decoys and you're calling and making them do something that, you know, they, they had a plan to go somewhere else. And it, it was also, it, it was the last trip that, um, uh, one of our hunting buddies went on before he passed away on, on January 1st of last year. We did that trip, uh, the end of, uh, um, the end of november and uh it was the last trip he went on with us filming so mm-hmm. that's something we got to look back on and remember so yeah well we're sorry to hear that yeah it was a pretty sucky deal he didn't uh just ran it's a random deal passed away in a shop and had a heart attack and died and as we were getting ready you know i talked to him the night before texted with him earlier that morning and buddy mine tyson called and said hey have you heard from jd you heard from jd i'm like well you know, this morning I texted him, I can't get a hold of him. His wife went out there to the shop and found him 
found him unresponsive. And he, I mean, we were literally leaving to go on a road trip the very next day. Oh man. Instead of going on a road trip, we went on a, I mean, we went on a road trip, but it was to a funeral, not on a hunt. So, uh, that's terrible. Yeah, cool dude, man. He never, never, uh, there wasn't anybody he ever met that he didn't make a best friend out of. He couldn't talk to anybody. He hated silence. There was never a quiet moment around. And if anybody was mad or upset, he had a funny way of making a joke about it and turning it all around and keeping the atmosphere light. And he's always always there man you know i get a text from him at 4 30 in the morning he's out plowing snow get a text i'd answer the text and my phone would ring i have to hurry up and run out my phone's ringing laying in bed i'd run out in the, in the living room and answer it but uh yeah no I, a lot of good memories a lot of smiles just it sucks he's gone he's got a left behind a beautiful wife and two young kids so it just makes you you just you just never know man life seems unfair but you know, everything happens for a reason. We're all standing in line. We just don't know the order. That's right. So you got to make every day count and, and tell everybody and let everybody know how you feel about them. Yeah, don't don't yeah. put off don't put off the things on your bucket list. Just get it get it done. Dang right. Start piling it on. The problem with bucket list for me is that the more I do, the bigger that bucket gets. That's right. Yeah. You know, because the more you do and you learn, it's like I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do that, you know. You know, and hey, we're not getting to be spring chickens anymore. So, <laughs> we're yeah, not. get out there, get out there, and get it done, and live every day. Okay, you know? so while we're on that subject of bucket lists, what what's the the next location you want to go on a goose hunt? Man, you know, I really love to go to Hudson Bay. I really love to go there, and 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 I don't know when I can make it happen or do or whatever, but. Just, just because that's the breeding grounds. That's you know you hear about the um, going up there and you fly in and the, the natives take you hunting and you make the mud decoys and you lay out the bags and you shoot them and it's 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 not a you know everything I've seen it's not a pile them up type you know style hunt which doesn't matter to me. I mean to me mm-hmm. it's about it's about the experience and I I really could care less if I even shot one. That's why I was talking to a buddy at Game Fair and he's he's a going up to guide for King Eiders up there on um, up there in the Bering Sea and, you know he's trying to get me to go up there and I said you know look I said it would be awesome and I said that's on my bucket list but I said for me and what I'm doing and traveling around and I'm trying to film goose hunts um that's prime time you know in January when you're going up there and you fly up there and you don't know if you're going to fly in do your hunts or fly out you may go fly in and get snowed in stormed in maybe get a half a day of hunting in and and have to sit there for another week before you can get out. And I just don't have the time to do that. But I mean, and even even up there, like I don't, I wouldn't have to even shoot one to to be a successful trip. Just to go up there and see, you know, see the how they do it and the big, you know, the the fishing boats coming in unloading and 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 the the waves and just I just think it'd be just one cool, awesome experience. And if we shoot, you know, if I shot one, of whatever kind of deal. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think that would be a great location. I read about it. Oh, geez, a long time ago in Wildfowl, and um, small, small decoy spreads, rags, and and silhouettes on the on the bay. And if yeah. I remember correctly, a pretty good diversity of birds in interior Canada's and 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 snows yep. and and blues yep. and and Ross. Pintails, mallards, yep. widgeon, 
you name it. Yeah. You know, and I, I guess the more and more I hunt, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I like, I like to shoot a limit as much as anybody, but anymore, it's more about just the, just having fun and the experience. Um, you know, if I'd never shoot another goose again, it's not gonna, I, I've shot a pile of geese in my life and to me it's about getting out there you know I mean and the, and the longer you do this the I guess your outlook changes but you know big pile pictures that you know I want I don't want so much that I want the you know the laughter and experience and you know friends meeting new friends hunting with old friends because like I said you know you know losing losing somebody last season you start reflecting on stuff like that a little more about what's really important you know and what we're doing out there yeah, and absolutely. you know we did we just we just uh we're wrapping we haven't the, the show hasn't aired yet and it's called paying it forward and you know and it's just it's talking about you know we we talk about hunter recruitment and introducing more people into the sport new people into the sport getting kids out there what we don't always talk about is how do we you know how do we keep people that have been in the sport in the sport as they get older you know the people that took you out me out as a kid you know, they're getting up there in age now and they, you know, they can't all around the spread of decoys and walk them 250 yards out in the field. They need, you know, you need to make sure that we keep these people involved in the sport and, and get them out hunting. That'll keep our hunter numbers up, but it also gives us a good opportunity to learn about our, our history and our past of waterfowling to be able to know what's going to be, not not just to, to hear the stories and listen to them, tell them, but you'll get a glimpse of where the where the next new style of hunting is going to be. Because what they were doing back in the day is you know hunting with silhouette decoys and laying out with burlap bags and hunting the edges. That's what we're doing today, right? You know, so you kind of get a glimpse into the the from the you know glimpse into the past to know what the future is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Right on, yeah, Sean, you. Um I, uh, I just got on a lease, uh, that's not too far from my house. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty accessible as far as, uh, you know, easier to hunt easier to get, get to and all that stuff. And I can take quads out there and all that stuff. And I, um, I was able to squeeze in as a member, um, the guy who introduced me to waterfowl hunting and I haven't got to hunt with him in quite a few years. And, um, I'm really looking forward to that. Like just kind of back back to my roots and hunting, hunting. Oh yeah. Again. Yep. Yep. I've got a couple of, uh, it's one's a, I got two, two guys that took me hunting a lot when I was a kid. Uh, one's a, he's a retired orthopedic surgeon now. And the other one is a, uh, a farmer and he doesn't farm anymore either, but you know, they're up there around 80. They used to take me hunting all, you know, all over. And now, you know, they're for a little while I was taking them. I take them to Canada and, different places and they're they're getting up where it's even harder to do that and just travel that far and the last few years we've been just going to to hork and marsh area in uh in central wisconsin and it's just a blast you know they have fun there's no pressure we're not filming uh it's just all about just having fun and if we shoot a couple birds it's great but they just enjoy getting out there and and being outside and doing it one more time yeah Horicon, now, are are those birds, uh, are they the same ones that are coming down uh, through Fergus Falls? Uh, some of those would be, yeah. Those, well, those are MVP birds mostly, um, uh-huh. Mississippi Valley population. 
um, maybe some EPPs and uh, and then the local giants will come through there. Yeah, they're the ones that breed uh, up in western, um, western well, excuse me, western Hudson Bay and James Bay area. Uh-huh. And some of those birds will kind of, when they leave the bay, will go to the uh, southwest and hit the Winnipeg area and then trickle down to Fergus and then slide over to towards the Horican area. Uh, but a lot of those birds, they kind of filter through the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan, down the Keweenaw Peninsula, through western the western UP, and then down in through um, central Wisconsin and stop there. That was, Horican Marsh was, uh, you know, back in the 70s, uh, early 80s, you know, Horican Marsh, Southern Illinois, um, Western Kentucky, those were the places that you went to shoot a Canada goose if you lived in the in the Midwest. There just really wasn't any any place else you could go. You know, the proliferation of the local Canada goose didn't start until, you know, the early to mid-80s, and then Michigan was one of the first states to offer an early goose season. I think it started in 86 or 87. 1986 or 87. So, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you talk about how things change. It wasn't that long ago that if you shot a goose in the Midwest outside of Hork and Marsh, Southern Illinois, Western, um, Western Kentucky, and you, you know, if you shot one outside of that area, it was in the paper and you know, people would show up and want to see it and look at it, that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, it, in a lot of ways we're spoiled like as i sit here i'm sitting here overlooking a, a dog training pond and and it's there's a pile of honkers on here and 30 40 years ago this wouldn't this wouldn't have existed so the opportunities that we have today as waterfowlers you know when they say about the the good old days well the good old days are now um never did we have the opportunity to go out you know and obviously you guys are out in the pacific Highway, but in the Mississippi flyway, we can, we got a 107 day long goose season now, three bird limit. Uh, and then, then there's, there's experimental seasons outside of that, the add on days, you got a 60 day duck season. Um, I mean, it's just crazy the amount of opportunities that we have and, and, in, and the total number of wildlife that we can chase. So yeah, the old days are here and now it's, it's the same out here. You know, I mean, um, we didn't used to winter all these crazy you know goose numbers here in the willamette valley where dave and i live um and where the shop is in in fact it at one point in time it was just a uh wintering flock of twenty twenty five thousand dusky canada geese and now there's you know quarter of a million you know cackling cackling geese yeah. on top of that and taverners and resident you yeah. know honkers yeah and, you know, and then some of that creates a little bit of controversy um, because change, people don't like change. No matter what they say, people don't like change. And and these are wild animals. Um, they're they're going to change. They're going to adapt. They're going to react. They're going to try to survive. Um, you know, we're, we're getting where our falls are starting later and later. Um, so they're going to be making changes. They're going to adapt. They're going to move. And you got people that want to hold on to, you know, we've always, we've always shot them here. There's no, there's no ducks. Like the, the two old guys back home that I hunt, you know, he gets, he gauges on how many ducks that we have by looking at the pond in his backyard. Well, that pond in the backyard started out as like a beaver sloop and had a lot of green vegetation in it for about five years. 
And then all of a sudden everything started dying. Well, when it had green vegetation in it, the birds were using it, they were feeding in it, they were roosting in it. You know, there's grass they could hide in. And then as the vegetation died, then you've got the, the, the long, you know, the, the woody stuff. So the birds would still come in there at night and roost. Well, now all the woods fell in and it's just a giant open body of water and there's no reason whatsoever for these birds either. But he still looks at the pond and there's no ducks. There ain't no ducks. There ain't no ducks. The ducks are all gone. There's something going on. A DNR, a DNR. No, they just, the, the ducks have moved on. They found a, they found a, a more suitable place for them to do the thing that they need, that they want to do, and that's survive. You know? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know like the Southern Illinois, the, the geese don't make it to Southern Illinois anymore. Um, there's spores spread out over the landscape. There's local birds. Darn near every city has a, you know, a, every rural city has a, a, a municipal sewage lagoon and, or, or a river running through town or a park. And there's, you know, anywhere from 50 to 250 birds that set up shop there. And then you get these birds that come, the migrating birds that come in through the, you know, from the north and they, they're flying along and they, they run into these little patchwork, little refuges all over and they start stopping and staying and spreading out. And we've got, you know, we've got more geese than we've ever had, you know, continentally, but they're also spread out over a greater area of the landscape. Than, than we've ever had. So they've, they've adapted and they've changed. So, you know, these birds that were traditionally wintering in southern Illinois and western Kentucky, they're all spread out, you know, from from north central North Dakota all the way down, you know. So there's just not that mass concentration anymore. Right. Right. Well, um, I've just been told that I think our time is about up, Sean. Tell, tell Scott he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, but, you know, well, you should you should ask him what happened last <laughs> he's week. Back, he's sitting in the background. Yeah, we got to stop. Shut that dude up. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's hungry. Is what it is. He's no hungry. really no really. Ask him yeah. what happened last week. Uh, hey, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, by you guys not going to game fair, you guys really missed out because we were cooking machines this year, man. Oh man. Yeah. 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 The wow. last day we threw it up big time. We had about five pounds of backstrap. We had fried turkey fried walleye we had turkey rolled up and bacon we had good summer sausage we were eating wild and living free That's okay stop damn. we'll we'll be back next year well how about nwtf <laughs> will you come to MD, nwtf well, i will be at nwtf richard tone will have a booth there it's not I the easiest place to let, cook I, I don't think they're gonna let me bring my <laughs> no. grill inside of nwtf yeah yeah but no but also man i appreciate everything um always love talking to you guys so well, yep. we appreciate you. you. We appreciate you very much, and uh, we appreciate your time and all that stuff. And and uh, we look forward to to hearing hearing more of uh, your success coming this fall and watching the show. And we'll see you at NWTF, but we'll talk to you soon before then. Now wait a minute. We all know Dave isn't going to this thing. Dave uh, is going this year. Yeah, I'm going. <laughs> yep. I'm, uh, all right. I'm not going to say by choice necessarily, but he's going. I'm not going to talk to anyone. Um, but but I'll be in the hotel room, like you know. Yeah. Like, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Watching Netflix. All right, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All take right. take care, buddy. Th- thank you all so right. much. All right, John. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.